Welcome to the latest episode of the podcast series, The Way Out Is In. My name is Joe Confino, working at the intersection of personal transformation and systems change. And I'm normally with my co-host, Brother Fap Who, but he is on a retreat. Uh, well, actually running many retreats uh, across South America and is currently in the Galapagos Islands uh, doing walking meditation with the giant tortoises. And I'm sure they've got a lot to teach him about that practice. So stepping in today is one of our dear elder sisters from Lower Hamlet, Sister Lan Yim. And uh, we are going to be talking today about consciousness and in particular about something called manas, the idea that we are a separate self, why it is we want to protect ourselves but also the risks of focusing just on ourselves. The way out is in. Welcome, dear listeners. I am Joe Confino, and I'd like to welcome Sister Lan Yim. Sister, welcome. Hi, Joe. So, Sister, what's it like doing your first podcast? How are you feeling? Uh, really nervous. Uh, I am sending energy out to the tortoises so they can poke Brother Fapu uh, <laughs> for not being here. <laughs> and get him back as quickly as possible. Yes. So, Sister, today we're going to talk about Buddhist psychology, the heart of Buddhist psychology, and um, and how it can help people lead a better life. And um, I'm very aware in my own life and also seeing other people that um, that we get stuck in negative patterns of behavior. We tend to do things that are not good for us. We tend to um, avoid suffering. We tend to seek pleasure. And, um, and we find it very, very difficult to change our ways. And, um, and within the Buddhist context, uh, this whole part of consciousness is called manas. And so um, it's really helpful, I think, for, for myself and for listeners to sort of understand how our mind works, so that when we face challenges, that we're able to really look into them deeply and to know to have the resources and to have the methods and to have the practices to change our behavior. So can you start off maybe, Sister, by just talking a little bit about the role of Buddhist psychology in understanding how our minds work? I think, um, I mean, there's so many different models of, uh, of how the mind works. Uh, Western psychology has one sort of model and Buddhist psychology has uh, one sort of model. But I think we have to remember that uh, they're all just models um, nothing is uh, absolute. Uh, and uh, the model of mind we have in Buddhism is really to help us to practice. And like you s uh, mentioned earlier, there's so many habits that are difficult for us to change. And once we understand a little bit how our, uh, have this framework of how mind works, it, uh, it's easier to practice and to help us to change some of the habits that we have. And actually, um, we have all kinds of habits. So it's not just 
um, you know, habits that uh, are not necessarily good for us that we want to change. But we also want to, there's so many good habits that we have also that we'd like to maintain and develop or even to introduce. Uh, earlier when you were introducing manas, uh, you, you kind of boxed all this uh, like not so good habits and and as- assigned it to manas and i was thinking oh that's a bit unfair because <laughs> um, i think in the, so in the uh, buddhist model of mind there's um, the part called mind consciousness that we are aware of in our waking hours we have a, a little um, mind consciousness is the part where we can recognize we can perceive we can uh, cognize. Uh, and then we have the part of uh, consciousness that we call store consciousness. And uh, in Western psychology, you could call it the uh, subconscious or the unconscious or background consciousness uh, even. And store consciousness is, um, uh, well, really nobody knows how consciousness works, but we just have these models to help us to understand. And I think the conversation today we have to keep remembering that. It's just a model to help us to to understand. Um, so in the Buddhist model, uh, the part where we call store consciousness, uh, is it's kind of like a processor and it's always operating. So even in our sleeping hours, uh, store consciousness is, it continues uh, to operate. And what it does is it's, um, it, uh, you can say that it, it contains all of the potentials. It contains all the seeds. We, we call them seeds uh, or potentials or um, a storehouse. Um, but the storehouse is not separate from the seeds. Uh, we have to re- kind of remember that. In store consciousness, there's the individual and also the collective. Uh, consciousness in general it, consists of individual consciousness or, and also collective uh, consciousness. Um, the individual consciousness is made of the collective consciousness and the collective is made of the individual. And so the part that we call manas is um, uh, a part of store consciousness, actually, that uh, we can say is like... A, in Buddhism, we call it. They call it has another name called the lover, because it comes back and it it grasps a part of store consciousness, um, um, and uh, to say that oh, this is me, this is mine. Um, so when we say store consciousness, we're referring to like all the seeds, meaning all of the potentials we have. Um, we could have uh, seeds of compassion, joy, um, sadness, anger. Uh, frustration, uh, or even talents, uh, um, habits that we have as well. And uh, what manas does is to, it kind of uh, picks and chooses. One of its functions is uh, that it picks and chooses, um, like, oh, I'm a joyful person, I'm not an angry person, I'm a sad person. So a part of store consciousness and say, oh, this is me. This is uh, this is who I am, um, and then it, it it does everything it can to protect to protect. Uh, um. So manas is is a part uh, is also known as uh, the survival instinct. 
So in Western psychology, we speak a lot about the survival instinct, and and uh, it's understood in terms of uh, um, like the fl- uh, fight or flight, freeze, fawning responses. Um, and uh, recently, there are new descriptions of it, like uh, attachment or submit uh, responses. And um, But in Buddhist psychology, um, the survival instinct is just one part of the function of, of, of how manas uh, functions. Um, so uh, other than appropriating a self, which is a part, taking a part of stored consciousness and saying, oh, this is me, this is mine, and uh, besides appropriating a self, uh, it has a function of protecting uh, survival uh, instinct. And you can understand it in terms of fight, flight, freeze, etc. responses. Um, but it also has a, the function of pleasure seeking. Also running away from, from, uh, from pain, from suffering. And uh, pleasure seeking, but also not seeing the dangers of pleasure-seeking, and running away from suffering, and also not knowing the goodness of suffering. Uh, and also, uh, one of its ways is it ignores the law of moderation. It's like in any biological system where you have the, uh, the, the accelerator and, and, and the brake, brakes. Uh, manas, in terms of pleasure-seeking, it will continue to to seek pleasure. There's no moderation. There's no mechanism to moderate. But in mind consciousness, you do have a mechanism, which is mindfulness. So it's it's almost, for me, sometimes in my practice, I understand it as kind of the breaks. You know, you go, you go, you pursue something long enough and you recognize the suffering and then you, you, you kind of break very naturally. But that is also... Um, in line with protecting, trying to protect myself and keeping myself safe and free from hurt, um, free from free from suffering. Yeah, that's a, a kind of a little bit of introductory uh, yeah. introduction to to what uh, uh, manas uh, is and and uh, its different uh, functions. Great, sister. So the, as you say, there's there's a lot packaged in that. So so let's just. Um, go back and maybe unpack elements of that. Mm -hmm. So the first thing you talked about was that it's a survival instinct Mm -hmm. and it's a sort of a creation of self that I'm this, but I'm not that. Can you just talk a bit about sort of how that works you know how mm-hmm. and, and why that's important because mm-hmm. because so much of the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh are based on interbeing that actually everything is connected that we cannot separate ourselves from anything else in fact but Manas is saying actually I am me and to survive I need to protect myself and I need to behave in certain ways so can you talk maybe a little bit about why we need a self and and how that maybe works for us but but why it stops to help mm-hmm. us Mm-hmm. Um, well, it, it is important to to protect ourselves. Um, that's um, that's how we can continue. But I want to speak about uh, the extent to which manas uh, appropriates a self. So earlier I spoke about just things like uh, uh, joy or compassion or being angry or not angry and saying this is me or that is not me. 
but actually it extends far, far beyond feelings, emotions, what's inside this body. Um, seeing this body as me, seeing these feelings as me, seeing these perceptions as me, uh, this consciousness as me, it extends uh, far, far beyond that. Sometimes you can even think a house is you, uh, a table is you, your favorite picture uh, is you, the chair you sit on on an airplane is a part of you. Because, you know, as soon as someone violates it, you feel your boundaries, yourself, quote unquote, self, uh, uh, being violated. Uh, or, um, yeah, even this cup of tea, uh, if it has my name on it and it's my favorite cup of tea and if someone should take it, I have some, you know, there's a possessiveness to it. So this self thing, we have to identify it to all of the things that we are kind of attached to, um, because then we end up protecting it. Manas kind of, that's the umbrella of, of Manas, this field of, of operating. Um, so sometimes it extends to a house, a company, uh, a family, an organization, or even a nation. And we have to understand, um, um, so where where we are identif- identity uh, the boundaries of our, ourself or our identity, uh, and that is where we, how much the extent to which we will uh, protect. Um, and I think it's very important to to understand this uh, because sometimes um, in order to protect what we feel is ours, um, uh, sometimes even a nation, uh, we do it at the price of... Uh, um, uh, and the lack of awareness of suffering that it could bring about to to others. Like if I wanted to protect my family at the price of another family's suffering, um, but I would do it anyways because I the function, um, my survival instinct is just to protect my my family, and so the practice um, we really my practice is. Um, first of all, I need to recognize this survival instinct in everyone around me, um, not just in the people, but also in different organizations, because in the organization, there's also a collective consciousness there, and there's also a kind of manas operating to protect the organization. Um, and uh, so when something is threatened, uh, yeah, uh, you, you go to some lengths to to protect it. And it's amazing, sister, how how powerful that feeling is. I mean, I, yes. I remember in my work, if I started a project and then someone wanted to change the way it worked or, or take it away from me, I felt such ownership over that. Yes. And it took me a lot. And, and, and the fact is that it harmed me because it then created all this turbulence in me. And also because I felt it was mine, it wasn't necessarily to the benefit of the project that it was mine and done in my way, because then actually I boxed it in in a particular way. Exactly. And and actually it was only late in my career that if that I learned the art of letting go, that creating something was very beautiful, but there's a point at which 
it's time to let go of something because mm-hmm. actually we hold on to things and mm-hmm. actually the more we hold on to it, the more they diminish mm-hmm. and the more the more risk there is to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think it's, it's important to recognize um, what we identify with and uh, and when when it is being challenged, the lengths to which we go to protect it, and the expense, the cost of protecting it to our own happiness or to the happiness of the organization, our loved ones, the people around us, other nations uh, around us. Um, and so for, I think for for my own practice, I need to learn how to recognize this um, when I'm when I'm triggering someone's survival instinct, um, because uh, it, and it's kind of easy to 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 recognize actually, like you know when you are talking to some someone and then they end up defending, you know, an idea, for instance, or um, uh, or something. Yeah, mostly ideas end up um, uh, defending ideas. Like I I'm aware that oh I'm encroaching on someone's sense, um, their identity, actually. And this is quite dangerous because if you continue, then you just escalate a situation. Whereas if I know that, oh, this is something that's important to that person and it's related to their identity, then I know to back down a little bit and I'll approach it in such a way that helps the other person feel safe. Because each one of us, for this um, we need to be able to feel safe. And uh, so the, the practice is, is manifold, actually. First of all, we have to identify what we, what we are identifying as, as ourself or belonging to us, and that needs protection. And does it really need protection? Is it really threatened? Um, uh, is, it being re- is it really being threatened? Am I really being threatened right now? Because, this, uh, you know, sometimes... Um, the survival instinct is has been there for a very, very long time in order to help our species continue, uh, actually. And it's uh, um, in the past, it, it, it was very crucial because we were under threat all the time. So many predators around. Uh, we always had to protect ourselves from the elements, um, the dangers. So there's so many dangers around. But now, increasingly in our world, we are able to create more and more safe environments in terms of homes or um, uh, relationships, uh, alliances, and things like that. And so, uh, but that survival instinct, that need to protect and feel that we are being threatened and in danger, is still very much alive. So we have to be quite aware of how manas operates, how this survival instinct is operating in us so that uh, we're not spending all of our energy just trying to survive and trying to uh, protect ourselves, but uh, to spend more energy trying to recognize what is our potential and what is the other person's uh, potential as well. Um, spend more time cultivating the things that we would like to cultivate in ourselves and in the other person. More peace, more happiness, more joy, more compassion, rather than spending so much time trying to protect the boundaries that we feel are ourselves and that need protecting. And I think that in teaching of interbeing is crucial in helping us to uh, um, 
to recognize the false boundaries or false identities that we are often stuck with. Every day, I think we have to train ourselves to see um, uh, yeah, that we're not separate. My happiness is not separate from your happiness. We can share this cup and I'll still be happy, <laughs> uh, for instance. Or uh, there's so many things that I feel like is crucial to my happiness, but I, I can kind of challenge that a little bit. And also, yeah, what I think is my happiness is not just my own individual happiness, but it's very, it's intimately related to your happiness, your safety, your well-being as well. So what I hear you saying is that, that in a sense, we are so used to, in a sense, winning what we need mm-hmm. without then thinking about what other people, if we win, someone is normally losing. And if someone loses, then it, we will suffer. And we're seeing that in the world everywhere, aren't we? That that countries that just look after themselves and just build their own wealth while other countries are suffering and there's poverty and then migration. And that actually that we we can't separate those out. But those those migrants will want to come and yeah. get the benefits that of that we have. So actually this idea of separation these days is increasingly looking um, like or almost like a nonsense because it's like mm. unless other, everyone is winning, then we can't win. Mm. And I also don't think of it in terms of winning. I also see it as survival as well. Even if you're a big country and you have so much wealth and you continue, like you say, wanting to conquer, win more, but actually, I feel it, it does have to do with the survival, survival instinct. And it's because of your ideas or ideas of happiness are threatened. And that's why you want more. You want to continue to, to conquer more because um, uh, what you feel, you know, makes up, uh, would be successful for you or, or what you feel is, uh, is your happiness is, is uh, like the boundaries of it, it's much larger. So I think um, the challenge is to come back and to recognize our ideas, um, uh, uh, our measures of success, uh, kind of uh, uh, look and, and, and look again, look deeply into the measures of success that we have. Because that also, um, yeah, it's, we're still on survival mode. Uh, that winning, uh, winning is also a part of uh, of, uh, of operating on on survival um, mode. Um, you think you have to have that in order to be happy. You think you have to have that in order to be successful, and that's because of your sense of identity. I have to have this. My happiness is this. My success is this, etc. Yeah. So, sister, for for those of our listeners who uh, may be listening for the first time, you know, mm. one of Thich Nhat Hanh's core teachings around interbeing. But can you give us a sense of how that is relevant here? So, so what? Just maybe mm. just explain a bit about what you mean by interbeing and how that understanding helps us to see things differently. Mm. Um. Well, very often we, we are seeing ourselves as separate. Um, this country being separate from that country, uh, this person being separate from that person, me being separate from the earth, etc. 
And interbeing is when we look deeply into to anything, anything at all, uh, we can see that uh, it's made of uh, non-it uh, elements, like a flower is made of non-flower elements. A flower cannot be by itself. It has to have the sun, the rain, the soil, the person, the cultivator, the uh, all of these things that have come together to make up the flower. And so the flower has to interbe with everything in order to be, in order to to be the flower. And it's the same with a person. It's the same with uh, with anything, any phenomena we see. Uh, including organizations, including families, including nations. We cannot exist um, by ourselves alone. We have to interbe with everything else that is. And uh, this is a real uh, daily practice because we are so, so often we're caught in this uh, idea of, uh, of separation. Um, so for instance, um, the war that's happening, the war that's happening uh, between uh, Russia and the, and the Ukraine. None of us are, are outside of that war, actually. Each one of us, uh, in the way we consume, in the way we have thought, in the way we have uh, led our lives, in one way or another, we have also contributed and uh, been involved uh, somehow, directly or indirectly. So the war in, in Russia and Ukraine is made of the non-war elements. It's not just the fighting that's happening that's making the war. It's, it's everything that has, has happened before that uh, uh, as well. And I, I want to get back to survival instinct uh, as well because I've been observing this uh, too, and um, for me, one of the thoughts that came up as I was thinking about, uh, about the situation was just how can peace talks happen that we can recognize the survival instinct? Uh, or how can we not tri trigger the survival instinct of a nation? Because that's very dangerous. Uh, how can we... Um, uh, we go about with the peace talks and negotiations in such a way that everyone feels safe. Because I know the world is, you know, kind of, we're almost taking sides, this side or, or that side. But for me, what's important is to really recognize this, the need for everyone to, the wish to survive, the wish to live, the wish to continue. And that's true for both sides. Uh, it's not, not applicable for for any one side that we want this side to not be there and so in the talks just my I've just been sending out a wish that how peace talks can happen that we give everyone a path uh, to 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 continue to to survive not trigger anyone's survival instincts and how can we speak about uh, peace in such a way that everyone feels that uh, they can be safe. Yeah. So what you're saying is as soon as you take a side, yeah. you're making someone else wrong. Yeah. And that person feeling wrong, it will trigger their survival instinct. Yes. Because if yes. they're made to be the bad person, they will retreat and they will then come up with all sorts of justifications for 
proof that proves why we have to be acting in a way so what i hear you saying is we have to actually expand our field of consciousness our field of awareness mm, mm. that if we're seeing things just from one perspective then actually we're by its nature making someone else wrong mm. about something yeah um i think everyone needs a way out everyone needs a way to sur- survive the way out is in Everyone needs a needs a needs a way out, especially when we're feeling cornered, especially when we are feeling um, threatened, when we're feeling threatened. So, uh, in terms of um, uh, speaking about manas and 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 survival instinct, um, I think it's important for us to practice to recognize when we trigger. Uh, not just trigger, but we have to recognize that manas will always be operating. Manas is always working day and night to protect ourselves. And whether that is an organization or a nation, it is always working. Because everything wants to continue. Nothing wants to, to and it will do everything it can to continue until there are no more conditions um, until the conditions are no longer favorable for it to continue. But even so, um, like you, you'll see that everything tries its best to continue up until the very last moment. And as you say, sister, um, as, at the start when you sort of said actually joe it's not all about being bad because actually mm. if you make manus the enemy you're you're yes. actually making the same mistake yes. right at the beginning yes so it's the one thing just to come back because i think it might help people is you talked about we're all in some way responsible for the mm-hmm. war we've all played our part and mm-hmm. and a lot of people might say Sister Lanyo, I've done nothing to to oh, yeah. uh, do that. So I'd really like, I think it'd be nice to explore that a bit because in my mind, we all contribute because our way of thinking yes. of, you know, Russia is this, mm-hmm. that our way of consuming has created certain uh, needs. Our, our, our way of thinking about democracy versus uh, states that are not democratic. I mean, there, there's a lot of thinking that has the collect that the individual and then the collective thinking that creates Russia as this as the enemy or this but I'm just wondering what how you would describe that so for someone mm-hmm. sitting at home saying you know oh yeah I'm 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 not responsible <laughs> um how, how would you sort of describe how we are all in a sense responsible for everything in this in some deep way well, for for me, um, recently, you know, because we had noticed that our energy bills will be um, will cost three about two three times the, the the price it was before, and then I realized, oh, we we every time I turned on a light or turned on a heater or something like that, I might have contributed to this in somewhere in terms of financing it, and in terms of um, ideas, in terms of. Uh, ideology or um, I think each time we've we've uh, well for myself each time I've harbored a thought where you know I want to punish someone or uh, each time I've wanted to uh, act out in anger feeling justified uh, in doing so uh, each time I've uh, 
uh, somehow I've I've sent that energy out into the world as as well. Or each time I have um, uh, condone condone any kind of uh, violence, even watching shows that I do, or you know, just continue because all of these seeds they continue. Um, in store consciousness, it contains all the seeds. And so each time I do something, um, uh, I'm watering this seed or I'm watering that seed. So how much uh, seed of the seeds of peace have I been wa- able to water? How much seeds of compassion have I been able to water? Uh, how much um, uh, of my anger have I been able to transform? Uh, kind of all of these things in one way or another also contribute to the situation. Um, because I find, and one thing that occurred to me this just this morning was that um, I felt, you know how we say there's a lot more destruction in the world, there's a lot more um, division, there's a lot more uh, suffering uh, in the world. But at the same time, I was I was I was sitting back, and I was also thinking, to the extent that the suffering or the the uh, violence, etc., that has grown in the world, so too has compassion and understanding. And I almost feel like they are growing at scale and in parallel with one another. And I think it's so. I think it's important for us to continue to um, uh, to for each of us to do our part in in contributing and in uh, watering more seeds of peace, compassion, uh, joy, happiness, and uh, it, that is a very um, direct way in which we can affect the situation as well. Because I I was thinking if there was. Uh, if the collective consciousness is uh, more aware that dialogue is important, peace is more important, nonviolence is more important, then we have a much bigger um, uh, resource. We have a lot more uh, energy to to uh, to hold the situation. And so, co- going back to uh, to that thought. In conscious, in uh, when we speak about store consciousness, um, store consciousness, and in the beginning, how I said you, you when you introduced uh, manas, you're associating all that to manas. Actually, store and manas, uh, there's another characteristic for it, and it and uh, it's called it's. We say it's indeterminate. Um, store consciousness is an of an indeterminate nature. So you cannot say it's good. You cannot say it's bad. You cannot. It just um, it's like a processor that just processes everything that comes in. So so it's very important for us um, um, to be able to kind of cultivate our consciousness if we want more peace, if we want more compassion, if we want more joy uh, in the world. Not to just let. Um, our habits kind of operate uh, and run on its own will. Um, but we have to be able to bring more of the elements that we want in. And uh, so that's why mindfulness is uh, very important because mind and mindfulness is like uh, the gardener, uh, the cultivator. Uh, and because store consciousness is indeterminate, 
um, you know, whatever you bring in that's more powerful, more strong, that is the direction it will uh, most likely go into. So then um, it's very important for each one of us to be more conscious in how we contribute to, we bring about peace in our daily lives, bring about a moment of joy, bring um, to have the capacity to generate a moment of peace, generate a moment of joy, um, generate a, a, a compassionate thought, etc. Because each one of those moments um, we're feeding uh, into store consciousness and uh, and uh, making it, uh, directing it more in that direction. Because if we don't, it could easily go in the direction of more violence, more greed, um, more anger, uh, more despair. So sister, what I, what I hear you saying is that actually we are all, you know, because when, when we see great suffering or, or great problems mm. in the world, we tend to feel powerless. You yes. say, oh, what can I do? But actually what you're saying is exactly the opposite, is that actually each of us is very powerful mm. because each of us contributes to the collective consciousness. So, so either we are supporting that division or we are creating what we want to create, which is this new paradigm. And, and also that actually our, every thought and every feeling we have has an impact on the people around us, which has a, which spreads out. So we tend to look out at the big stuff coming back to us and we feel powerless. But if we look at it from the other direction, that the thoughts I have, if I'm able to be more compassionate, more loving, more aware, that will affect everyone I come into contact with and mm-hmm, every one mm-hmm. of those people who is touched or sees some value in it or, 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 or feels happy as a result of what I said, they will... they each touch many people. And actually, so if we look at it from the, uh, from a sense of power rather than powerlessness, we actually mm, can affect mm, great change. Mm, mm. Yeah, it's so easy to forget when we just think of ourselves as individuals, we feel powerless. Um, but when we can recognize our interbeing, we feel much more, uh, there's a lot more power. There's a lot more... Um, yeah, we feel a lot more empowered mm-hmm. uh, in terms of uh, the ripple effects, uh, seeing the ripple effects of, of our, our actions, even if it is only a thought. You know, before I used to think that, oh, it's just, in, it's just happening in my mind, you know. It wouldn't affect anybody around me. So what if I had a thought that's not so, not so um, kind? Uh, about someone or about something or etc. It's just all happening in my mind. Uh, but the more I practice, um, I, I see that that's not true at all. It leaks out in one way or another. It ends up leaking out. My um, so even our, in our own thinking, uh, we also uh, have to uh, learn how to to practice. Um, to be more aware of the, the the kinds of thinking that we're engaged in and the quality of, of thoughts uh, that we have, and I remember one the one the first time I heard Tay uh, teach about this, he said, "Oh, even in your thinking, um, even your thoughts um, uh, continue in the world." And I was sitting in the audience. I'm like, well, if I don't let anybody know, how can people know? And then, and then the next line he said was, because it's like rain, 
you know, it's like an uh, uh, an acid, a cloud. It's like an, a cloud, and and whatever quality that cloud uh, is, it will rain. That like if it's an acidic cloud, it will rain acid rain, and that will affect uh, what's in our stored consciousness. What's in our um, it will land in the ground of our our our, our consciousness and and go out in the world. And when I heard that teaching, that was the first time I started being um, more kind of aware of uh, of the thoughts that I produce, and uh, and to be more, I guess, um, more careful about the thoughts that I produce. So even even in our own thinking, um, to start generating peace uh, in our own thinking, and also. Um, training ourselves to have more compassionate thoughts, um, and that will will uh, for me over the years. I do see that it has a great effect on on all of the brothers and sisters who are, are around me, because um, I find it so easy. Um, uh, it's so easy to have non compassionate thoughts uh, about ourselves. Um, uh, to be very critical, and because we think, oh, it's only happening inside, you know, who cares? But actually, we would never say that to another person, for instance, or we would never, um, well, some of the thoughts I used to have, I would never say it to another person or to even um, wish it on anyone else. But yet I'm always, you know, it's always, I'm, those thoughts are always raining down on me. And so I find I'm being most uh, unkind, unkind to myself. Um, so it's very important for us to to train ourselves in our thinking as well. And uh, because each thought, it does uh, water a certain seed or potential in us, uh, in our stored consciousness. Um, and in terms of peace building, it also starts there. And sister, when you talk about sort of training our mind, so again, for the benefit of our listeners, so how does that work practically for you? So the fact is, we have thousands of thoughts mm. a day. So is it that if a negative thought comes up that you're maybe not happy with or don't think is fair, is it that you stop the thought from even coming out because the thought will come out? Or is it that actually, because I think Ty has talked about that in a sense, if you say something mean or you think something mean, you can then send a thought after it to neutralize it. Mm -hmm. So that even if something, you know, it's never too late to to change things. Even even with our ancestors, we can mm -hmm. go back historically and and heal. Mm -hmm. But but how do you do that on okay. a daily basis? Whether we yeah. have so many thoughts. Um. Well, I think that the first practice is to just uh, bring mindfulness to it. Uh, just recognizing that, okay, there's a thought here. And for myself, I ask uh, the second question. Uh, I mean, I ask myself, well, what quality thought is this? Is this a thought I want to keep? Is this a thought that's helpful for me or not helpful for me uh, at this time? So if I may um, evaluate, the kind of evaluate the quality of the thought, then I would know whether I want to continue the thought or, or not. Um, and so, so the practice is to just, uh, recognize it, just to call it by its true name, what is its nature. 
Um, and we have the practice of saying hello, you know, when the thought comes up, you just have to say hello to it, smile to it. Uh, we don't not condemn it, not condemn it, not judge, not criticize, because it's there for a reason. Uh, it's there for a reason. And uh, so the the thought of just recognizing, not pushing it away, not uh, condemning, just smiling to it. Um, and then when we evaluate kind of the quality of the thought, we can always change it out with another thought, like you said. Uh, it's a practice of changing the peg. Um, and then eventually you kind of like, um, because this practice is kind of like a filter, you, you kind of... Uh, uh, slowly, slowly filter out the kinds of uh, thoughts that uh, uh, you want to keep. But it's not just thinking that's happening. Uh, so the practice is not just to recognize what the thoughts are uh, that are coming up and then, uh, you know, embracing it and uh, allowing it to be there and then, you know, waiting if, for it to go away or to changing it out with uh, another thought that's... Uh, more more um, conducive to our happiness, um, but also the environment in which we are in uh, triggers many different triggers thoughts all the time. Um, so it's very important uh, if you let's say if I'm in a a club with blaring music and you know all kinds of activities around me. The quality of thoughts I have in that environment would be vastly different than if I were to sit in a forest uh, uh, on the banks of a, a river or a burb next to a burbling stream. Mm. So it's very important to to also see that our environment, um, in terms of the quality of thoughts that we have, is very closely related to the environments that we're in as well. Um, some of us are in very uh, wonderful, nurturing, working environments, for instance. So it's so easy to have, you know, great thoughts about everyone, uh, etc. And then uh, sometimes we are we happen to be in very toxic uh, uh, working environments, and so every day something gets triggered in us. Uh, uh, some negative thought gets watered in us. Um, so it's very important to choose the environment, uh, the good environment to be in, even sometimes at cost. Um, and we have to make that choice for ourselves. Which environment do we want to place ourselves in? Because the environment touches off so many things, touches off so many different seeds, thoughts, perceptions in us. So... The environment here, I don't mean just a physical place, but also the people whom we are surrounded with as well. So we really have to choose uh, carefully uh, what kind of quality relationships, quality life we want to lead and and to kind of be very selective with the, the environment. Well, well you, you saying mm -hmm. that, sister, reminds me of um, many years ago when uh, I, so as a journalist, I was Wall Street correspondent of the Daily Telegraph and, and my time was ending and I, I was coming home and I had two job offers. Mm -hmm. And one of them was um, at The Guardian in a sort of a lesser position than I was at for the Daily Telegraph in New York. And one of them was this 
very high position in one of the tabloid newspapers where I would be running departments and I would be earning lots of money. And and it was just so interesting because I could just see probably what the Manas type mind is saying, ah, you know, there's status, I'll be able to say I'm this, I'll be earning this much money. But actually underneath that, when I stopped, was this recognition that it would be a hugely toxic environment Mm. and that I would probably last six months to a year and that it would probably destroy my soul. Mm. And then the other job at The Guardian was actually a place where I felt I could be more myself. I could could create. I would be there for for as long, you know, for a long time. Mm -hmm. And, And I wouldn't have the position. I wouldn't have the money. And it was so interesting to watch that process And when I really sat with it, Mm -hmm. it was so clear what was attracting me to the tabloid job was, Mm -hmm. you know, was this idea of, was, was my ego, but actually I knew it would destroy me. So I took the job at the Guardian and I was there for 23 years and extremely happy. Mm -hmm. And if I'd taken the other job, I would have probably, as I said, been there six to 12 months and come out feeling a wreck. So it's uh, that, 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 that you were just saying that just reminded me of, um, of that moment in my life where I had to make Mm -hmm. that sort of choice of my environment, because I knew that would, that would decide actually my happiness Mm -hmm. and my, and whether i felt I could be purposeful and lead a meaningful life. Mm. So uh, that also reminds me that um, it's very important for us to also recognize our deepest desire, our deepest desire. Uh, And it's not just to survive, it's to be happy and to kind of download this message to to our stored consciousness. And uh, the stronger... Um, awareness we have of our desire, uh, of our deepest desire. Our deepest desire is to be happy. Uh, our choices align uh, accordingly. And what you just shared um, just kind of reminded me of that. And I think it takes so much courage to be able to recognize and to um, mm, to make the choices that go in the direction happiness rather than uh, anything anything else (laughs) but sister one of the things we often confuse is happiness for for pleasure and Mm. uh, and you started off by saying one of the core attributes of manas is is pleasure seeking Mm. and avoiding Mm -hmm. avoidance of suffering so it'd be lovely to explore that because i think that so many people will understand that it could be on any level could be it could be around food it could be around sex could be around gambling could be around relationship could be around many things where where we we mistake happiness for pleasure Mm -hmm. and for seeking pleasure and so can you talk a bit about that aspect of manners that drives us often to behaviors that we feel great shame around but we feel pulled Mm -hmm. towards Mm. well seeking happiness is also uh, a part of the pleasure seeking uh, as well. Um, so I don't think happiness is like um, something pure and outside of of, of, uh, of of this, but it's just we have to be able to recognize what true happiness is. Um, and uh, the pleasure seeking, it could be, you know, I mean, we can enjoy a piece of chocolate and say, oh, this is a source of happiness. Um, and uh, But it, 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 it's only happiness to such an extent. 
Um, and but it is a kind of happiness. It is a kind of happiness. It may be a bit of a, a more superficial happiness. So I think our our practice is to learn how to recognize the deeper kind of happiness, because um, there are all so many different levels uh, of happiness, and the pleasure seeking part of manas will always drive us towards these many different levels of of happiness. Um, we can feel like happy watching movies, uh, for instance, reading a good novel. Um, I was addicted to reading <laughs> novels with happy endings uh, before. That was one of my uh, uh, happinesses, but very superficial. I think um, now um, there's so many things that uh, pull our attention, and and uh, especially through advertisements or things like that that say, "Oh, this is." If you have this or if you have that, that's uh, it could bring you happiness. Um, or uh, whether it's success or, you know, if you have this kind of job, it could bring you happiness. If you have this um, chocolate cake, this kind of coffee, it could bring you happiness, etc. Um, so that's, uh, that appeals to the pleasure-seeking part of of. Uh, of manas, there's so many things that appeals to uh, the pleasure-seeking um, aspect uh, function of of manas. Um, but I think in our training, in our um, practice of mindfulness, uh, is to recognize all of the different kinds of conditions of happiness that are available to us right now, and um, we have so many uh, conditions of happiness. And I think for myself, when I first met Tay and learning, and then learning how to recognize all of the different conditions of happiness that are available to me on a daily basis, every single day, the smallest things like uh, being able to open my eyes and just see forms and colors, and or um, when I remember when I first came back from my first retreat and just being able to hold my niece. I was like, oh, this is such a big condition of happiness, but I was taking it for granted every single day that I was able to hug her. Um, and then um, uh, being able to walk, for instance, uh, that was a huge condition of happiness that I never paid attention to. Um, so the pleasure of walking, the pleasure of walking. So many things that I've, took for granted uh, in that I took as normal in uh, my daily life before I met Tay. When I came back from the first retreat, suddenly became such sources of happiness. So uh, it was as if I was able to open my eyes to all of the different conditions of happiness that were available to me uh, at the time. And... Um, and so the more I paid attention to these different, it could be the blue sky, it could be uh, the bed that I was sleeping on, it could be, um, you know, just the fact that I was able to, uh, that my parents were still alive, or that uh, I had brothers and sisters around me. So the more I was able to open my eyes to all of the different conditions of happiness that were available. And there are so, I mean, countless, countless uh, favorable conditions. Um, 
And um, the more I felt my happiness deepen. So I never had this idea, uh, you know, I didn't really, couldn't define happiness. I couldn't, I didn't know what happiness was or I didn't know how to define it. But just um, following taste teaching and trying to incorporate mindfulness into my daily life and learning how to recognize that I do have so many conditions of happiness, I felt my happiness become bigger, greater. Uh, and then slowly, it didn't take much for me to be happy anymore because I was able to easily recognize um, yeah, the different uh, conditions of happiness that are already available. So it didn't take much to, to, uh, to trigger happiness uh, in me. And this, of course, also has to, Manas, I know, is operating at that time. Uh, when I'm able to recognize that, oh, this is uh, a condition of happiness, it's not separate from, from Manas uh, at all. So it's a good thing. Um, this uh, um, uh, pleasure-seeking part, it is, uh, it's not like it's a, it's a bad function uh, of Manas uh, or anything, but it is a part of who we are. It is a part of who we are. And uh, to have conditions of happiness, um, it's necessary to, um, I guess, uh, to sustain life. I can't imagine if I wasn't able to recognize any conditions of happiness or to have any kind of, you know, pleasurable feeling or things like that. I cannot imagine that I would... I, I can't imagine how life would be. So I'm I'm thinking that it's quite vital. Um, and um, the difference between, uh, it's not the difference between the pleasure seeking or the happiness, but I think um, the, the difference is learning how to recognize uh, the different levels of happiness uh, and the different kinds of happiness that are available to us. And some kinds are much more superficial. Uh, some kinds are a lot more deep, but we don't rec we don't consider them in our normal daily life at all. For instance, being free from a feeling of anger, or right now being free from uh, um, uh, right now like not having any craving in me at this moment, like a feeling of non craving, the state of non craving. Um, that's also a very deep happiness. But very often we're not able to recognize that, um, uh, that that is a kind of happiness. And so uh, I think training in, in ourselves in uh, uh, recognizing um, happiness um, on a daily basis is, is very important. And the more we're able to do that, the more we can recognize like very simple, but actually quite deep kinds of happiness. Yeah, it's so, so interesting about a sister, isn't it? Because it's, it's just doesn't, you don't need to go on a training course. You don't have to spend money. It doesn't have to take 10 years of hard work. It's just a change of 
perception. It's like putting a different yes. lens yes. in our camera rather than a very narrow mm. lens. We open up the lens and we just... So actually, in five minutes, we can actually start to change the way we see our life. Yes. It's that yes. simple if we choose to, if we yes. really, really choose to, mm-hmm. just actually there's so many things to be grateful for. And I think a lot of people find like a gratitude practice very helpful for that, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Because it's just to say, mm-hmm. actually, every day, what am I grateful for? Mm-hmm. And, and there's so many things to have gratitude for. And even when we've got, because it, it's quite difficult because there, there are lots of people who are suffering greatly in the world and it, it always challenged me when uh ty used to say you know that there's always more than enough conditions to be happy mm. and i think so you know when people are suffering it's really important to recognize the suffering and it's possible Mm-mm. to see beauty as well and i think mm. it's it's not the fact that if we're suffering we have to only suffer we can also see beauty and uh it reminds me of uh when my mother uh, my mother was um uh, grew up in Germany, and um, and uh, she was Jewish and had to um, leave Germany at the age of fourteen after Kristallnacht, when the Nazis came and smashed up the family apartment, and and my father um, found a way for her to go to England, and she went on a train alone at the age of fourteen, and uh, and I just remember talking to her about it, and she said, you know, and I expect her to tell this terrible story only of suffering, you know, that she was leaving her family behind, not knowing what would happen to us. She was become a refugee as a teenager going to a foreign country. And so in my mind, I just imagined that she would be suffering hugely mm. and just feeling this terrible pain. And she said, yes, you know, it was, it was very difficult. And also I was so excited. You know, I was going on an adventure. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was going to a, a new life. And, and it, I was so deeply profoundly respectful of that because that changed my whole understanding that when we see someone suffering or talk about suffering we think it has to be all suffering Mm -hmm. and she was saying yes I was suffering and also I was feeling excitement Mm -hmm. and just the fact that she was able to describe that actually changed my whole perception of that actually we can have more than one truth. We can suffer and we can be happy. And, and if someone's suffering, we don't have to just have to offer them more suffering. Mm-hmm. We can offer them lightness of being. We can offer them joy, but also while being deeply respectful of the suffering. Mm-hmm. But sister, one, one thing I want to, because a couple of things you talked about and have talked about in the past about Manus is one of the problems about seeking pleasure is that Manus tends to um, ignore the issue of moderation so it's mm. like I'll have another piece of cake mm. and then another piece of cake. And then I, so, so it's that this inability to monitor, control that. But also probably more profoundly, I think one of the dangers of seeking pleasure is if we're also doing it to avoid suffering. Mm. And I think you've described in the past about Manas also wants to avoid suffering. And one of the, the great teachings of Buddhism is actually in our suffering is our happiness and our happiness in our suffering in the whole idea of interbeing that that we need it's really important to understand our suffering Mm -hmm. because in our suffering we find more of who we are we find deeper insights we're able to transform that into happiness whereas if we're if we're following just this idea of manas as pleasure seeking Mm -hmm. we're doing often doing it as a bypass Mm -hmm. for our suffering to avoid past suffering or avoid future suffering so can you talk maybe a bit about just that idea of pleasure seeking 
mm-hmm. and moderation, but also mm-hmm. that actually if we're trying to avoid our suffering, that mm-hmm. leads to addiction. It leads mm-hmm. to much great. It, I mean, trying to avoid suffering actually leads to suffering. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, I'll give an example. Um, in terms of uh, avoiding suffering, sometimes... Uh, when I recognize this, uh, this quality, this uh, habit, this energy come up, uh, oh, I want to avoid this. Uh, if I have an, an argument with a sister and then I, I don't want to um, kind of cross paths with her <laughs> on that day or something. Um, and I, and I, so my practice, I say, I, I just talk to myself and I say, oh, uh, hello, Manas. I know, I know, I know you're there. I know you're trying to protect me. I know you're trying to protect me. So I say thank you, you know, thank you for protecting me. But my, the, the sister's not, she's not dangerous. She's not dangerous and I can, I can approach her. So then I kind of deal a little bit with this um, energy of avoiding, avoiding suffering. Because like it seems going to talk to her is a source of suffering <laughs> at that time. Um, so then I, I, I say, oh, no, she's not dangerous. She won't be, she's not a source of suffering. Uh, so I, I kind of download these messages and then I try my best not to avoid avoid her, uh, for instance. Um, I think it's, it's um, important to be able to talk to yourself. Um, in terms of um, moderating, moderating manas uh, so that it doesn't um, go too far in the pleasure-seeking direction or too far in the pain avoidance uh, uh, direction. Uh, it's important that we, we speak to our, we talk to ourselves, and uh, uh, when we recognize that we are uh, pleasure-seeking, um, that we say, oh, Yes, I am running after this kind of pleasure right now. Uh, so just to bring awareness to it, just bring mindfulness into it. And even when we are avoiding suffering, just to bring mindfulness to it as well. And I think, especially in terms of running away from suffering through uh, pleasure-seeking, we you know, seek to drown ourselves in movies or or um, seek to drown ourselves in conversation, seek to drown ourselves in this or that. There's so many different things that we can consume in order to uh, kind of forget our suffering or run away from, uh, from our suffering. And a part of that is also because we're not ready to, uh, we're too afraid, we're too afraid of, uh, of the suffering that's there. And so our daily practice is... Um, in terms of uh, coming back to ourselves and recognizing what is there and just to be able to embrace it without pushing it away or or uh, judging, uh, etc., is is very important. But some suffering is so deep and it won't... Like, minus is very powerful in terms of protecting and not allowing even memories to come up. So some suffering is very deep, it won't... Uh, we might not even be aware of it. And uh, this um, consuming, consuming in order to 
cover up our our suffering is is very a very powerful habit energy. And I think the message we have to download to ourselves uh, on a daily basis when uh, an uncomfortable feeling comes up or um, when a painful memory comes up is to reassure ourselves that we are we are safe. Uh, we're safe and uh, it's okay for that memory to be there. It's okay for that suffering to be there because the habit is uh, is that... Uh, we don't want that suffering to be there. So for myself, I often um, talk to 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 myself, uh, and I say things like, uh, "Well, it's okay," or uh, "Can I have? Can I? Can I get permission to look into this?" You know, well, because I the protect the the. The protective mechanism is so strong that I need to seek permission from my own self to look into something. And I think when I'm able to do that, then um, um, uh, then the seeking pleasure, that that habit of consuming into uh, in order to cover up a certain kind of suffering is not so powerful anymore because there's no need. I have permission to look into the suffering. Um, I have permission to... Um, I feel safe. Um, I, I have permission. Um, I remember the first time I kind of like viscerally felt this kind of energy and, and that I had to ask permission. Um, was when I was playing volleyball, actually beach volleyball, uh, with the uh, brothers and sisters in uh, at a beach in near Deer Park Monastery. So it's sand, it's a beach, and all of the brothers and sisters it seemed, they knew how to dive and go after the volleyball. And you know, every time you dive, you have you land flat on. And I had such. A, a protective instinct. I couldn't allow myself to fall. Um, no matter you know what I did, even I couldn't allow myself to fall. And I and so I stood there for a moment and I said, "It's perfectly safe. You know, we are uh, in a very soft, sandy beach. You can fall. You can fall." Uh, and then I was like, "Can I get permission to fall?" You know, so I was really talking to this protective instinct, and sure enough, uh, after a few minutes, I was able to, I was able to dive for the ball and allow myself to fall. Before that, I, I'd been playing volleyball for quite a few years already with the brothers and sisters, and I just could never do it. And that one day, I observed, oh, everybody's just uh, allowing themselves to fall flat. You know, get, uh, at first it was like, oh, everybody's allowing themselves to be injured, you know. So that was my first um, kind of like experience uh, with talking to this protective mechanism in me um, and seeing how strong the, the desire to protect myself is, whether it's my body, my feelings, my perceptions, my thinking, etc., um, so every time I, I need to look deeply into something or, or I feel like I'm running away from something, um, and sometimes I, I can't recognize what it is that I'm running away from, actually. 
um, because it's so it's so skillful at hiding and not allowing me to see what I, it is I need to what I'm suffering from. Uh, so, um, for instance, uh, just last year, I spent a lot of time kind of like learning languages, uh, just. And it was a sort of running away. I knew that. I knew that I was using language learning as a method of running away from some. I just felt, you know, uh, I just felt I was uh, running away from something. But I wasn't very clear on what it is that I was running away from yet. But I just, I just, it was almost like an addiction learning language for me. Um, just this last year. And then I spent some time just saying, oh, um, just talking to myself. It's like, yes, I know I'm running away from something. I know I am, mm, you know, there's things that are, are I'm not so happy with uh, right now. Would you allow me to, to, to look into it? Would you allow me to, to be with it? Mm. And I had to talk it uh, I had to have these conversations with myself after uh, for a while before I was able to actually recognize what what it was that I was really suffering from um and to really be able to uh, to have it like come up um to my mind consciousness clearly enough that I could call it by its true name like recognize it and say ah oh, that that's so this is what I'm I've been suffering from. So sometimes you, you know, uh, it's very automatic, the pleasure seeking. The pleasure seeking, we don't know what it is we're suffering from yet. Um, so I think it's quite important to have this, develop this relationship, uh, learn how to speak in, to ourselves in such a way that we, um, we have, uh, we develop a relationship that will allow um like more flow, more circulation in, uh, in, uh, in our consciousness. And then uh, some suffering that needs to surface and uh, that needs to come up so that we can, we can look into it will come up. But for me, I feel like uh, Manas does such a, a good job of protecting anyways that uh, when I'm ready, it, it will automatically know when I'm, ready to look into something. But my job is to not get lost in the consumption or the pleasure seeking or, and my job is just to make uh, uh, some uh, space to download, you know, messages of safety or that uh, um, I'm strong enough or et cetera, um, like to kind of reassure that it's okay. But I know that you know, when um, when it's time for me to look into something, it will it will come up when so I'm ready. When so I'm so ready, that's such a profound thing you just said. I just want to just refocus it on a moment mm -hmm. because what often happens is that we also seek pleasure in order to beat ourselves up, mm -hmm. and because and because we we often have our inner critic, we're often at war with it, with mm -hmm. ourselves, mm -hmm. and so you know we act in something, and then we feel shame. And then we uh, we feel we're bad people, and so and then we we get in this cycle where then we want to consume even more. Mm -mm. And what you said was so profound because you said what essentially you were saying is 
if I show compassion to myself, if I show patience to myself, if I deeply listen to myself. So all the things we we normally try to do for other people, mm -mm. but often find it very difficult to do it for ourselves. But if we do that for ourselves, mm. then actually mm. we are becoming our friend rather mm -hmm. than an inner critic. We're an inner lover. Mm -hmm. we're, we're someone who mm -hmm. who's learning to love ourselves appreciate ourselves recognize the suffering yeah and be there for ourselves and mm. and and so in a sense it's our own self-healing it's yeah not someone else can't heal us yeah yeah something else can't heal mm. us mm. but we can heal ourselves yeah. so so the other part of practicing with uh, manas um uh, so first i say hello i recognized how it, it works uh, uh when i want to you know, when I'm pleasure seeking or when I'm running away from suffering or uh, when I'm ignoring the law of moderation or, you know, when I'm in survival, when my survival instincts have uh, been triggered. So the first, the part of the first part of the practice for me is to, just to recognize it. But the second part it relates to what you just shared too, is that uh, I, I actually am learning how to, to be grateful for it. To mm. say thank you, thank you, Manas. Like even even when I'm pleasure seeking, because I know that I'm I'm trying to protect something. I'm trying to run away from some in order to protect something as well. Uh, so now I'm learning how to say, okay, well, thank you. Um, maybe it's not so necessary right now. Um, um, yeah, thank you, anyways. Um, thank you for protecting me, but maybe I don't need protection right now i can look into this or uh, i don't need this kind of um, pleasure seeking i don't need this kind of uh, i don't need this right now yeah, yeah. but thank you anyways so and i'm learning how to to be grateful to the different ways in which i am protecting myself yeah and often when we're protecting ourselves we're increasing suffering whereas if we face the suffering we realize it's never mm -mm. quite as bad mm. as yeah. we think it is and, yeah. and as we were talking sister it reminded me of um, once when i was at the guardian and i was running um, i was news editor of the business and finance section mm. and there was someone who kept on criticizing me one of the he was the the most senior reporter and i always felt he was judging me badly for the story choices i was mm. making and the way mm -mm. i presented the pages and 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 it was really getting under my skin. I was angry. I was uh, feeling upset. I was feeling belittled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And mm -hmm. my mind was going into overdrive. And then one day I thought, I just need to face this because I was using it to judge him. I was using it to also to judge myself. Well, maybe he's right. And you know, all this, all the way our mind works. And I just asked him for a meeting. And I just sat in a room with him and I said, "This is how I'm feeling. I'm feeling judged. I'm feeling that." You're belittling me. I'm free. This is what's coming up for me. And he was so apologetic. He said, look, I'm so mm. sorry. This was not my intention at all. You know, I I'm, I gave his, you know, we had a long chat and he became my best friend mm. and my best supporter. And in every meeting, if there was a challenging situation, he would speak up for me. And it was such a powerful example that actually... Often our, when we face our suffering, it's never as bad. I, I always see this, uh, I imagine this, uh, these famous cartoon I once saw of, uh, of a dark room and on the shadow of the wall is this huge monster and you think this huge monster is and you want to run. But when you turn and face it, it's, it's a little mouse just in front of a lamp. So it's casting this huge shadow. 
but actually it's just a small mouse. And I, I, and I think this, this attempt to run away from our suffering creates the suffering. Mm. And when we face our suffering and the way out is in, as you say, the name of this podcast, then we can actually find mm. happiness and joy actually by going through. I think most people feel they, they'll get lost in the suffering, that they won't be able to handle it. It'll be too much for them. But actually, when we face it and go, rather than get lost in it, we go through it. On the other side of the suffering is our joy, is our happiness. And we can't bypass it. And it, it and it's such so hard in this modern society to really have the, the support to do that. Because as you said, there's so many pressures on us to consume, to, to look for fool's gold. So, sister, just one final question. Um, just, just remind me, how, how many years have you uh, been uh, a nun? Uh, since 2003. Wow, so <laughs> yeah. 19 years. Something like that. Yeah. So, so just finally, how, no, speak with everything you've said, how, how would you describe the difference you see in yourself from the person from 20 years ago to the person you're now, how, how would you characterize that sort of shift and, and, and how it's, mm. and the impact it's had on your life? I'm neither the same nor different, <laughs> I guess. Uh, it doesn't, um, well, when I first became a nun, I had no idea I was going to live this kind of life, actually, because when I, when I first entered the monastery, of course, I had so many ideas about um, monastic life, what it is and what it isn't, etc. And uh, and then uh, being a nun, every single day, my ideas about what being a nun is or what practice is, um, uh, what kind of person I am, is just constantly being challenged uh, all the time. Um, every day, I have I find I have to remove or dismantle one idea or another that I, I have about myself or the life of a nun, uh, the life of community, what Plum Village is even. And I think that aspect has continued to this day. So even after, after 19 years, I still feel every single day I have to remove some kind of idea that I have about... Uh, about uh, myself or about the monastery or about the practice or about uh, what engagement is or isn't, etc. So many different ideas. Um, but it, if I think of it like that, then I feel maybe my bodhicitta is still, meaning, you know, the beginner's mind is still alive since this practice is still very much uh, alive. So I, I guess I have to be... Uh, uh, be thankful, be thankful for that. And it seems, um, yeah, every day there's something new, new to, to practice, uh, to practice with. Um, anyhow, I, I do love uh, being in this community, being with you, uh, being with the, the brothers and sisters, uh, etc. Yeah. Lovely. Dear sister, thank you so much uh, for joining us today and for sharing uh, your wisdom. Thank you. Uh, and sister, um, in Fapu's absence, it would be lovely if you could give us a short guided meditation just to ground ourselves and come back to the present moment. So, dear listeners, um, 
Right now we will practice a short guided meditation. Um, you might like to do this in a uh, quiet place um, or somewhere you can feel you can uh, close your eyes and uh, relax your body. Sit still for a few moments and um, we can uh, just simply close our eyes and allow the words to, uh, to uh, do its job. <laughs> Breathing in, I'm aware of my in-breath. Breathing out, I'm aware of my out-breath. In, out. Breathing in, I bring my attention to my body. Breathing out, I relax my whole body. In this moment, I feel relaxed in my body. In this moment, I feel safe in my body. Breathing in, I smile to the thoughts that are arising in me. Breathing in, I'm aware of the thoughts that are arising in me. Breathing out, I smile to the thoughts that are arising in me. Aware of thoughts. Smiling to thoughts. It's okay for my thoughts to be there. Smiling to them. Relaxing in their presence and feeling safe in my thinking. Breathing in. I'm aware of the feelings in me. Breathing out, I smile to the feelings that are happening in me. Aware of feelings, smiling to feelings. Feeling safe to feelings. Feeling safe with feelings.
breathing in, I embrace myself in my entirety. I embrace all that I am. Breathing out, I smile, a smile of gratitude to all that I am. Including the birds, the sky, the white clouds, the squirrels, the sunshine, the water, my neighbors, my friends, my roommates, my community. Smiling with love to all that I am. my pain, my difficulties, my joys, my sorrow, my peace and happiness. Smiling with love and gratitude. So dear friends, you can open your eyes now. Thank you so much for practicing with us this short guided meditation and for joining us in the podcast today. And dear listeners, um, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. Um, If you would like to hear more, you can uh, find The Way Out Is In on Apple podcasts on spotify on other platforms that uh, share podcasts and also on our own uh, plum village app and the podcast has been brought to you with the support of the Tiknat han foundation Yeah.